This is Yudah Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. It's been a while since we've checked in with North American university campuses and gotten a sense of the pulse, what's happening on the ground um, in pro-Israel spaces, in pro-Palestinian spaces, in conversations surrounding Jewish identity, the conflict here. So for this episode, I asked uh, Rina, uh, one of the students uh, currently on our ATID student leadership program, student of social work at Ryerson University, somebody who's been very active organizing there on the ground in Toronto, to join me on the program and to share a little bit about what's been going on on her campus and how she sees uh, the correct strategy in terms of dealing with some of the challenges confronting our people specifically Jewish students on university campuses. Irina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you are a student at uh, Ryerson, correct? Yeah, that's currently. In, okay, and that's in Toronto, Canada, which has traditionally been a pretty hostile area in terms of student conflicts over, over the conflict here between Jews and Palestinians. How's Ryerson been for you so far? in terms of both conversations surrounding Jewish identity and the political atmosphere, attitudes towards Israel, interactions between Jews and other minority groups, uh, specifically perhaps Palestinians or Muslims. Uh, how are things on campus right now? It's, um, it's been a journey. Um, I'm in my third year currently um, studying social work and I only kind of came to this realization in my third year um, how the topic surrounding Jews is just not, it's, it's not a thing. Um, it's, it's hard to explain. I, I started the program um, with a really open mind coming from a Jewish Hebrew day school uh, in the Jewish bubble. I, was really eager to learn about um, other minority groups and other forms of oppression outside of um, our own. And I'm really grateful that I got to, uh, you know, learn and experience other cultures and other groups. Um, and then when it comes to anti-Semitism, it is not touched upon at all. And it is a big issue in, in Toronto and in Canada. Um, so that was really upsetting and frustrating um, to experience going into it. Um, and then it was during the most recent war in May uh, that broke out between uh, Israel and Gaza that it really ignited a fire within me um, to bring up the conversation um, with the faculty and the administration for my program. Um, and I definitely hit some walls, but uh, also made some progress as well. So, okay. Can you elaborate on the attitudes or lack of attitudes when it comes to questions of anti-Semitism? Yeah, so I brought up the conversation about how, you know, we're talking about all these topics that pertain to the Jewish people and that pertain to uh, Jewish hatred and how... Basically, we're talking about these issues that pertain to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people are just being completely left out of it. 
um, when it comes to white supremacy or when it comes to um, oppression and hatred within the Canadian context as well. Um, so I brought that up to the faculty with my program and I was basically told that, you know, we hear you, we feel you, but there's nothing we can do because if we address it for the Jewish people and the Jewish students, then we have to address it for everyone else. Um, and at the time, it at the time it wasn't about everyone else. Um, it was about the Jews, and I felt like just totally disregarded as a Jewish student, especially in a program when it comes to social work, where they claim to care a lot about minority rights um, and to advocate for them, but. For the Jewish people, we don't count. Well, let me try to understand. You're saying that there was a specific issue that was taking place in Canada, in the Toronto area, that pertained directly to Jews, but the faculty of your program didn't want to address it. Or you're saying that there are issues that also impact Jews, but nobody wanted to talk about the way in which they impact Jews. It's both. Definitely both. Um, during that specific time where I began the conversation, mm -hmm. um, Jews are being told in, in predominantly Jewish areas within Toronto to uh, stay in their houses during certain hours. Some people were so scared that they were taking down their mezuzot on their houses. Um, and I genuinely, at the time, um, we weren't in person, we were on Zoom. So I brought up to um, the faculty that I, as a Jewish student, would not feel safe for my life in the classroom as a, as a Jew. And yeah, I was I was uh, basically just shut, like the nothing, nothing came of it. There was nothing done. I was not taken seriously. And then also when we do talk about, uh, you know, social issues and different forms of oppression, um, specifically with anti-oppressive practices within the social work, fields and practices um anti-semitism is never brought up and if it is it's really grazed over and not touched upon in depth or explained at all right well i think part of the problem is that most people don't know what to do with it meaning, right. meaning anti-semitism i would say doesn't it is a system of oppression but it functions differently than racism Meaning, mm. like anti-black racism for the most part keeps a certain group at the bottom of society through you know various institutional practices etc um but anti-semitism part of how it works is by making jewish oppression less visible by right. placing jews in positions of power uh you know maybe not the very top but you know high middle I think that the way anti-Semitism existed, for example, in feudalist Europe was really by enlisting Jews who definitely felt themselves very vulnerable and oppressed in those places, enlisting Jews to manage the oppression of others. Uh, meaning that, uh, you know, the, the Jews would often be enlisted by the nobility to collect taxes from the peasants. So just from a psychological perspective, the Jew was the oppressor that the peasants saw. And when the peasants had had enough of their oppression, they would lash out at the Jew, meaning these pogroms that would take place in many cases 
were instances of peasants experiencing themselves as punching up. Uh, they didn't make it to the nobleman's castle to like burn it down and tear down the system, uh, but they got their anger out by attacking the Jews uh, because the Jews were the oppressors they saw. And I think that's a very raw model for how anti-Semitism uh, operated then and maybe even operates now. And I think even part of uh, its function today is to present Jews as white, Jews as um, powerful, um, yeah. Jews as silencing criticism of Israel. Uh, and I think there are many ways in which we sometimes contribute to this. I mean, I think that we need to be conscious of how anti-Semitism works in order to effectively combat it. Uh, like, for example, I'll, I'll give you a great example of something that I personally think contributes to systemic anti-Semitism. And that's when Jewish organizations push lawmakers to advance like anti-BDS legislation. Because okay. what, ultimately ha what ultimately happens in those situations is the toxic conversation surrounding Israel and Jewish identity still remains because the real problem with BDS is not, you know, when a campus, I don't know if Ryerson has had BDS votes or not. Um, mm -hmm. have, have there been? Um, I know that, I don't know like the in-depth detail of it. However, I do know that they have actively um, gone against, like they have chosen to deny the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Hmm. Um, there are schools that can neither accept it nor reject it, kind of just leave a neutral stance, mm -hmm. um, but they've actively chosen to reject it. Um, okay. But it's it's hard because the thing is, we don't fit into the what's today known as a minority group. We don't fit into the you know, the way that they're portraying minority groups and the way that they're portraying oppressed groups. So it's really hard to, like, it, it's hard to know where we fit into that conversation because it's not black or white. Right. Um, That's why it's so important to understand how systemic anti-Semitism works. Right. And it's also really hard to have the conversation about anti-Semitism and Jewish identity and also maneuver around the conversation about Israel. And that whole balancing act is really difficult because ultimately you can't separate the Jewish people from Israel because we are Am Yisrael. Right. So it's a whole, in these progressive spaces, it's really hard to properly address anti-Semitism and the way it manifests today and historically um, and also Jewish identity. It's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think within our own communities, specifically in the diaspora, we don't, we're not there yet. Like we ourselves have a lot of catch up to do. So it's just, it, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Right. So, well, let me just finish building this example with the BDS, uh, because sure. I think it's important not to leave it hanging. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I would say that the problem with BDS resolutions on university campuses is not the threat of universities divesting from the state of Israel. That's not a threat mm -hmm. to the state of Israel. Um, the problem is the toxic conversation surrounding these votes. Yeah. The attention. What it brings. Right, right. Just the fact that like 
what the conversation becomes on campus, how it makes Jews feel about their own identities or uh, wanting to kind of like avoid thinking about their identities. And I think that when the perception of powerful Jews mm-hmm. silencing legitimate criticism of Israel actually feeds that toxic conversation, meaning it might prevent a university from you know, holding a vote on divestment, but it doesn't stop the conversation that's actually the problem. In, in fact, it legitimizes that perspective. It, it strengthens the illusion that powerful Jews are capable of silencing legitimate criticism of Israel. And I think that is really how anti-Semitism operates today. It portrays Jews as more powerful than we are, certainly more powerful than we feel. I think the flip side of it sometimes is that Jews, especially in Israel, don't know our own strength. I think we're a lot stronger than we think we are, um, but we're not super comfortable with power. Like, I think we're uncomfortable with power. Just the fact that we've been without it for so many centuries makes this reconnection, this um, reunion with power, this, you know, having power again for the first time in 2000 years has been a a very complicated uh, experience for us. But I think that because so many other minority groups, even if they're like slight variations, the basic system of racism, you can see like Islamophobia is kind of similar and anti-immigrant sentiment is kind of, meaning there's similar, you can see how they intersect. Uh, You can see how it's really the same system that is victimizing these people in the same way. Whereas Jews are, are really given what I guess we can call conditional inclusion. Um, yeah. Right, like, and we want it. I mean, the part of the problem, and, and I think this is also a part of our oppression and part of our colonization, the fact that we've been so traumatized by not being white, by not being included, uh, by not having a seat at the table, um, that we're so eager to grab onto whiteness when it's offered. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been used to control us. I think uh, certainly in American society, probably in Canadian society as well. Uh, And I think even the state of Israel on an international level, often the state of Israel, you know, works very hard to align itself with the Western powers and to want to be perceived as like part of that club, uh, because it also gives the Jewish nation as a collective a sense of security that we have strong friends on the right side, you know, that we're the good guys, quote unquote. Uh, whereas I think, honestly, I think the real, the, the most effective way to combat systemic anti-Semitism is for Jews to make a conscious decision to side with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors. Whether that right. in a, an American or Canadian city, whether that be on the global stage, the state of Israel, whatever it is, I think we can refuse to participate. We can refuse this conditional whiteness. We can refuse the uh, inclusion into an unjust system and actually use whatever power we've been given in order to serve the oppressors to actually turn the tables. I think in that sense, I think Jews very much occupy what we can call a Darth Vader role. And I'm talking about, you know, forget the new movies, just like assuming that you're familiar with the Star Wars movies, right? Familiar, haven't seen them. Oh, wow. None but... Okay, so the metaphor might be lost <laughs> on you. But basically, the, the point I'm making is that Darth Vader is empowered by the Emperor 
in order to oppress the galaxy, but it's only Darth Vader who's ultimately able to defeat the Emperor in episode six. So I think that that's a role Jews occupy. I think I think the Jewish people and the state of Israel kind of switching sides and joining the oppressed and fighting for the oppressed would actually change the situation globally uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I I also think there's a lot of power in in taking our identity into our own hands mm-hmm. um, because we are used as a pawn and our identity changes based on the time frame or based on the society that we live in, based on the politics that are going on, um, and to be able to come out and say, no, this is who we are, um, and to be very strong in that there's a lot, a lot of power in it. Um, And that's the discourse that I'm trying to bring uh, to the social work scene um, when we do talk about oppression in minority groups and specifically with when it comes to whiteness and colonialism, we're being lumped in where we don't belong. And yes, certain Jews do benefit from conditional white privilege. And I do think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, However, that is not our identity and we should not be defined by that. Right, maybe Um, sometimes it's helpful to separate between a noun and verb. Right. Like I can say that the Jewish people are native to the land of Israel, um, but the Zionist movement could still be doing colonialism as a verb. Yeah, uh, two and, things can exist at once. Right, and, and and the same, I guess, with diaspora Jews and their place in society. Uh, but our, you know, the, the way our oppression has operated historically, especially in the diaspora, has been very cyclical. I mean, you right. See the pattern repeating itself all the time that that Jews, you know, often enter a society, immigrate to a country, you know, start from the bottom, uh, work their way up to a place of privilege and inclusion, and uh, and at a certain point that all comes crashing down, and the oppression we've experienced historically. I, I hope it doesn't happen again, but the persecution we've experienced historically. Uh, during the downturns has actually been much harsher and uh, much more destructive than mm-hmm. the constant uh, oppression other people's experience in the system. So it's different. Right. We're not constantly feeling this, you know, I think a lot of these other groups with oppressions that are more visible and uh, easy to identify, you know, their oppression is often very constant. Like they're kept in a certain place in society and that might not change. Whereas with Jews, we have these like upswings where we're perceived, we're not just perceived, I think it's often very real that you have a lot of Jews very visibly being very upwardly mobile and occupying positions of privilege and in some cases power in society. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, when we talk, and I'm sure you experienced this when you started talking about how you feel oppressed as a Jew, I'm sure you've seen people roll their eyes or just kind of be like, what is she talking about? The Jews are doing great. Yeah, I was told that uh, it's uh, we can't really talk about Jews when it comes to whiteness or white supremacy because Jews are inherently uh, connected to it. So we're not we're not even allowed in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um Right. So I think the way into the conversation and the way to be taken seriously 
is to be able to articulate the difference. Meaning at the end of the day, you know, that whole kind of like white, non-white binary does it not only do we not fit into it, it actually erases the it erases our experience and our experience of oppression. Exactly. But how do you maneuver that when that's the entire discourse that's going on? Well, I think maybe by acknowledging that it's true, by understanding the discourse as it exists, where it exists, and saying that, yes, this is true, this is, you know, how uh, systemic racism operates. But the way Jews have historically been oppressed, or at least, you know, for the last few centuries, is different. And here's how it's different. And here's how it actually might intersect with the oppressions that other people are feeling. I, I think that I get the sense that a lot of uh, black organizers who are organizing, you know, against racism, when they hear Jews claiming we're not white or we don't experience white privilege, they hear us actually erasing or downplaying their experience. So I think it's mm -hmm. very offensive to them. Uh, whereas at the same time, it's offensive to us because we don't want to define our identity or our experiences within somebody else's context. Like whether right. or not the black experience applies to the Jewish people should not be the measurement by which we understand our own experiences. Yeah. Uh, so And I it's also playing right back into white supremacy, which aims to pin minority groups against each other. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times it gets into this, like, comparing and seeing who had it worse when it's not, you know, that's not where the conversation should be. Right. Um, and part of the problem is that the way in which, let's say, the Black community experiences and understands its oppression the clearest are actually areas in which the Jews seem to be doing pretty good. So the mm -hmm. specific indicators that they might be looking at like completely don't apply to us so i think it's important to be upfront about the fact that you know systemic racism doesn't affect us systemic anti-semitism does and that operates differently and, and i think that's a different definition all these different like warring definitions of like what anti-semitism means which ultimately come down to whether they include or don't include israel i, I think this this understanding of systemic anti-semitism is really in my opinion, the more sophisticated approach and an approach that could actually bridge gaps, you know, with other uh, oppressed peoples. Mm -hmm. Because it, yeah, acknowledges, it, it acknowledges like what we do benefit from while also explaining that that benefit is part of how our oppression operates, which is a paradigm shift for a lot of people. But I think if, if we are uh, sensitive and understanding of how their oppression works, and don't come across as trying to downplay it or attach ourselves to it when it's very clear that we don't share those experiences, I think that leaves space, that creates space for people to be able to hear how our oppression might operate differently. Right. I just, yeah, my experience has been that there, there isn't much room for both truths. Mm -hmm. Like the uh, progressive world, um, the social justice warriors, if you will, it's really hard to hold both of those things at the same time. Why do you think that is? I just don't, I don't, I, I think these are very new ideas and, and a lot of people, a lot of non, the non-Jewish world hasn't been exposed 
to choose that. Like I, I met a lot of people in my first and second year that have never met a Jew before. Mm -hmm. um, people are not exposed and, and they don't understand. And I think when you don't understand something or someone, um, there it, it can create like very uncomfortable feelings and there's the unknown and possibly can turn into fear. Um, I don't, it's, yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this. Let, let me ask you if you think that one of the reasons why it's so difficult for people on the left, whether it be on university campuses or elsewhere, to acknowledge Jewish oppression or anti-Semitism, um, especially when the conversation starts to kind of get close to Israel, is because there's a, a concern that by by acknowledging anti-Semitism or organizing against it, there's a concern of erasing the Palestinian struggle or straight up throwing Palestinians under the bus. Mm -hmm. Meaning that the way it's framed often, I mean, I, and I think there's, there are actually a lot of Jewish groups on the left um, and they, you know, their tactic is to kind of combat anti-Semitism by separating Israel and even making, you know, on the left, it's actually considered a form of anti-Semitism to associate Jews with Israel. Uh, meaning like- That shows how, how far removed the Jewish diaspora communities are from, you know, our, our authentic selves. Right. And that's part of the colonization we need to yeah. acknowledge and work to dismantle. But, but it's it's deep and there's many layers to it. And it's not as simple as just like uh, frontally coming out against it. Because, I mean, like, for example, I was no fan of uh, Donald Trump. But uh, one of the things he said that I actually appreciated, I think there was this one point where he spoke to like a room full of American Jews, you know, Jews with U.S. citizenship. And he referred to our former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, as their prime minister. Like, even though they were not Israeli citizens, they were Jews living in the United States with U.S. citizenship. You know, the president of the United States referred to the prime minister of Israel as their prime minister. Now, I think at that moment, Trump was actually saying something deeply true. Because at yeah. the end of the day, they're Jews. At the end of the day, they're the people of Israel. Like, that mm -hmm. is a real national identity. But for a lot of Jews in the United States, the feeling that raised real feelings of fear and i think it's very easy for the jewish left to label that a form of anti-semitism like conflating jewish identity with israel um you know i i also think it's just true that you can't hold every jew in the world accountable you know for policies decided on in jerusalem like that doesn't make sense um it's not like every jew in the world or even every jew in the state of israel get a say in what our cabinet decides yeah but at the same time we definitely need to acknowledge that um the attempts on the left to actually combat anti-semitism are attempts that separate jewish identity from belonging to israel supporting israel etc and i think what we need to do is to actually include israel in the conversation because i think yeah. just you know the, the same way that systemic anti-semitism operates in Canadian society, American society, um, European societies, I think on the global level, on the international playing field, that is exactly 
the trap that the state of Israel finds itself in. It's been pushed mm -hmm. into this role of middle agent depressor, where it feels, where, where you have Israeli leaders and a lot of Israel's ruling class and a lot of the citizens here really believing that our survival depends on our usefulness to the big powerful nations. Like the more the Americans need us, the more we serve American interests here. I mean, a lot of Hasbara over the years has actually like expressed that, you know, even this like kind of trope of like, we're America's dependable ally in the Middle East. Like that comes from a place of anti-Semitism, of feeling like mm -hmm. the only way we're going to survive, the only way we're going to be safe is if we make ourselves useful to powerful Gentiles. That is how anti-Semitism operates. That's how it operated, you know, with the Duke and the Tsar and the uh, Kaiser and whatever. Um, and that's how it operates here today, that the state of Israel uh, experiences itself as requiring a strong relationship with a powerful Gentile nation that perceives us as useful to advancing their interests. Yeah. And, and the way to break free from that is to is actually to define our own interests and to say, right. this is the world we want to see. This is who we are. Um, and so, you know, we have to we, we have to realize that we can't have our cake and eat it too. But I think that those conversations, you know, what I think is productive about those type of conversations is that on the one hand, it acknowledges the role of the state of Israel and the complicity of the state of Israel in the oppression of others. I think that's something we can't hide from. I don't think that's something we should live in denial of or, or try to hide. I think mm -hmm. that's something we should confront because, you know, I'll tell you this, and you tell me if, if this resonates with you in terms of your campus experience. Sure. You know, most groups, you know, especially on a university campus fighting for social change, most of the groups that we would consider part of the activist community are groups that are trying to change something, to challenge an injustice, to achieve some kind of goal, to achieve some kind of meaningful change in the current reality. Um, the pro-Israel community seems to be the only student groups that are actually just defending the reputation and policies of a nation state. Yeah, so, I agree. So often, you know, the pro-Israel community is excluded from the broader activist community. Uh, they're perceived as agents of the Israeli state and not as people trying to change the world in any positive or meaningful way. And I think the, the way to respond to that um and, and i think what we should have been doing all along is not fight to defend israel's reputation or israeli policies but to decide what our vision is what we want israel to be what we want the world to look like and to fight for that uh, and mm -hmm. and to really step up and challenge injustices um you know stand with marginalized groups uh, recognize how their oppression operates. I, I think that also yeah. creates a space for us to be able to share how our oppression operates. But I think right now, most Jews, even the things that we're talking about right now on the show, uh, most most people in pro-Israel spaces don't think like this, don't have this conception of how it operates. I think we're, we're still in defense mode. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot, there's a lot of trauma involved. I'm a granddaughter of three Holocaust survivors. I, I like, grew up with paranoia and fear, mm. um, you know, always striving for what's the safest and what's most comfortable. Um, so I, I understand where that's coming from. Right. Um, 
at the same time, I think it's time to really get out of that mindset, although it's it's very difficult for a lot of Jewish people. But yeah, I think we have to take the conversation into our own hands um, and take our identity into our own, own hands and reestablish it. And at the same time, um, listen to the other groups, listen to what people are saying uh, and, and start that conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that, that experience you have, um, that's a very real and very deep experience, like being the granddaughter of three Holocaust survivors, that's something that's invisible to everybody else. Yeah, it's it kind of feels like, you know, it happened. Let's right. move on. There's more important issues to talk about. But I think I know for my parents, like it's it's still very real and it's mm. really hard to get out of that mindset. And I'm sure it influences so many decisions that they make and maybe even you make. For sure. But that's also part of um, decolonizing um, our minds and kind of, you know, bringing us back to what's happening, the reality. Um, and that we do have the power to really make change. Um, and I think hopefully the new generation of Jews will, you know, wake up to that. And I think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I feel that, um, you know, Jewish education, identity education, maybe more specifically applying a lot of post-colonial tools to Jewish identity is probably a prerequisite to... Mm effective organizing, you know, around issues pertaining to Israel or Jewish identity on campus. Because I think that what, what often happens, you know, what I've seen on many campuses is that most of the Jews leading the pro-Israel groups, uh, in addition to appearing as if they're just like defending the policies of a very specific nation state, they, they really do, you know, see themselves as white and want to be white. And they're looking at the world through the lens of, you know, capitalism and liberal ideology and imperialism being justified. Um, It seems, you know, in so many cases, like, for example, in the United States, a lot of the people involved in in pro-Israel movements are voting Republican or even Democrat. I mean, at the end of the day, like most people in the activist community are are not supporting the Republicans or the Democrats. Uh, But yet the leaders of pro-Israel movements they want to be part of the mainstream. They see themselves that they're buying into the mainstream Western narratives um, that the activist community is actively trying to tear down. So I, I think just trying to understand those things better. I mean, maybe you're well positioned because you're, you know, you're not in business school, you know, you're learning social work. So I'm sure that mm-hmm. conversations come up again and again and again, and you probably have a much better grasp on them than a lot of other students in pro-Israel spaces. Yeah, it's um, it's just when you're told that you're not, like you don't, I think we're trying to fit ourselves into boxes that we don't belong in. Mm-hmm. And the discourse in the way I feel is really about like fitting people into boxes. Mm-hmm. And how do you dismantle like an entire system right right now that's going on and that's trying to be pushed and pushed and pushed and we're like we don't fit into this where do we go right and we need to acknowledge ourselves that we are unique in history we're we're our own box the jewish people are not going to fit into anybody else's box because we're and that's even when you look at israel like you know the question is 
are the Jewish people um, indigenous to the land of Israel? Uh, yes, is Zionism, uh, was Zionism a native people's liberation movement? Yes, was Zionism a colonial project? Yes, meaning that mm -hmm. there were, uh, we're complicated, you know, we're the only people I could think of that was displaced from its land uh, yet actually maintained its identity for thousands of years and came back to the homeland it had been displaced from. And, and it's so crazy because these, like we learn about indigeneity and, and indigenous practices specifically, you know, growing up, in, growing up in Canada, Canada has a really horrible history of how they've treated their, um, the indigenous population. And so we, we learn about this mm -hmm. and, we learn about land and, you know, how the indigenous people in Canada, how they connect to the land and their uh, rituals and their spirituality and their history and, you know, how to, how to heal from it and have that conversation around truth and ultimately the goal towards decolonization of the land and we as Jews, yes, we've made mistakes along the way, but we have, you know, you can argue successfully done that in in certain ways, but we don't talk about it. Right. It's such a, it's, I, yeah. I mean, partially because we're not, we haven't finished the process. I, I would say we definitely, we liberated our land um, from the British and later from the Jordanians and the Egyptians uh, and the Syrians. I don't want to forget about our Golan Heights but we but we did not decolonize and i think that's the problem i think israeli society still needs to go through that decolonization process um yeah. I, I think another reason why it's so confusing is because a lot of the colonial structures that need to be dismantled were either british colonial structures that the state of israel kind of grandfathered in and continued or were zionist colonial structures uh, so I think that the decolonization of our country would require both the, would require the dismantling of those colonial structures and the decolonization of Jewish identity um, would require, you know, a, a significant post-colonial conversation. So, so I think we haven't done those things, you know, like after the Lehi defeated the British and the Zionists declared a Jewish state, they basically just took the British flag down and put a Jewish flag on the British system. And we never had a real conversation about what makes a state Jewish or what kind of, you know, what kind of society we're trying to create or how to, or how the trauma of the persecution we had experienced for the last 2000 years affected us and how we can heal from it, you know, and, and how we can move forward in creating a society, you know, that expresses our identity and values. I mean, we never had that conversation of, uh, maybe we weren't ready for it and and maybe it was just politically expedient to ignore it you know for a lot of people who were in power at different periods of of the state of israel's history it was much easier to just kind of like kick the can down the road you know what i mean like kick it to the next guy and not deal with this stuff but today we need to deal with it and the problem is the fact that we're not dealing with it I mean, you're right. Canada is a settler colony. At the end of the day, Canada is a settler colony. The United States is a settler colony. And Israel very much looks like a settler colony because we're not willing to actually confront the question and do the work of decolonization. 
Right. Just because uh, we're not there yet, I still don't think that doesn't make us um, worthy of a seat at the table Mm. of, you know, these conversations surrounding um, discrimination and minority groups. Um, We have work to do. Every every community has work to do. Mm. But at least, you know, include us. Right. So I think that the more we understand how our oppression is different from other forms of oppression and understand their oppression, understand our oppression, understand how they're different, I think the easier it will be to take a seat at the table. But it's also very important that when we show up for other peoples, we don't show up as like liberal white allies. We show up as another group experiencing its own form of oppression and trying to resist that oppression and and seeing how that oppression actually does intersect with other systemic forms of injustice. For sure, I think that's how we create um, connections and bonds. And when when I was learning about the indigenous peoples of Canada and you know their history and the way they function as a people and their culture and traditions and beliefs, I, I it was beautiful and I really connected with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really like it touched me uh, in a way that I didn't understand at the time. Right. And now looking back, like I, I felt a lot of similarities. Right. Um, to the way our, our peoples are. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally agree. Like yeah. making those connections, and I, I think it is by understanding each other and, and opening opening the discourse between between groups um, and holding holding multiple truths. Uh, you know, I agree, and and I also think that because um, this concern, especially in activist spaces, there is this concern that by you know showing up for Jews and fighting anti-Semitism, there is like some negation or some erasure of the Palestinian struggle. I think it's important that we also be very upfront about mm-hmm. acknowledging them and and making space. I very much see Jewish liberation and Palestinian liberation as intertwined at this point. I think Palestinians yeah. are very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis and, and victims of our trauma. Uh, and I think the more that we are able to decolonize Jewish identity and to heal, the less we'll behave in a way that's experienced as oppressive by Palestinians. And uh, and of course, you know, I would hope that would have the effect of them wanting to fight against us less and um, hopefully we'll be able to get to a better place. But I think it's important that, you know, especially in the diaspora, you know, or at, the, at least in the diaspora, when you're having these conversations, that it's very clear that you are making space for them. And this isn't just like, you know, because I think a lot of people in the activist community are suspicious that, oh, those like Zionists are using this woke language in order to trick us into supporting their oppression of Palestinians. And so I think it's very important to just kind of like get in front of that and be like, no, like we see that we're against that, but we have ideas on how to fix it. And it doesn't involve us retreating from our story. It doesn't involve us retreating from our land. It it involves us actually doing what we came home to do and being what we came home to be. Yeah. And in the social work space specifically, I see, uh, you know, Jews that want to get their voice out there, sometimes whitewashing our own history. Mm -hmm. and avoiding certain topics and certain 
words like Israel or like, you know, Judea, why are Jews called Jews? Mm -hmm. um, and they avoid the, this language to not turn people off. But I, I just, I don't think that's effective in the long run. Mm -hmm. Right, no, because it leads to just uh, a watering down of our own identity, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we have to be just as strong as uh, the other groups are just as strong in their in their identities. Um, we can't stray away from that. We have to be like super, super uh, proud and, and not, uh, not we, we can't back down. Mm -hmm. Right. From, uh, we, have, yeah. we have to hold our ground. Yeah. Right. No, that's very important. And, and I think that there does need to be an upsurge of Jewish national consciousness, but real mm -hmm. Jewish national consciousness, not like, you know, part of one of the flaws of Zionism is that it really, you know, it really kind of utilized a very European style of nationalism. And that's not really relevant to us. I think we need to go deeper and unearth our like authentic Jewish national consciousness, because I think that's one that actually can make space uh, for the other and uh, without retreating or compromising on the historic aspirations of our people on the on the values on the goals that have driven us for thousands of years yeah all right well rena thank you so much for coming on the show i, I think this is a, a very interesting and very important conversation i hope it's useful to a lot of people out there especially uh, politically active jews and university campuses Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation and uh, I'm going to keep fighting the fight. All right, great. Uh, this is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Uh, if you are interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 72. 